Welcome back to the Lime Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander. This is a place that we bring together the world's leading experts in all things health and wellness, help you optimize your mind, body, and movement. Today's conversations with my best friends on the planet and also one of the world's truly leading experts on nutrition and prevention of cognitive decline and ways to protect your brain function all through your life with food and lifestyle. Max Lugaver is the guest. Per mention, I really deeply value Max, his mind is truly brilliant. His capacity to hold on to information and statistics and studies and deep nerdy details about what the heck is inside our food and information of the sort is really unbelievable. And I'm excited to share this conversation with you guys. He has a new book coming out uh, called Genius Kitchen, over 100 easy and delicious recipes to make your brain sharp, body strong, and taste buds happy. Max is the New York Times best author of Genius Foods. This is his previous book. He's been on all the major media, all the doctors and the Dr. Oz's, and the, I mean, he's a bona fide badass in this space, and I'm excited to share his mind with y'all today. I want to thank you guys for leaving reviews on Apple Podcasts. I want to read a review from, this is just letters. The name is F-G-H-F-A. It's just a lot of letters. Whoever that is, thank you very much. They say, simply the best. I've been listening since day one and continue to find this podcast to be one of the most beneficial tools and curating a meaningful, healthy life. Aaron, thank you for creating such a beautiful space to learn and grow from. Highly recommend, exclamation point. Thank you, bunch of letters person, F-G-H-F-G-G-G, a lot of letters. Uh, appreciate you guys subscribing, um, sharing, telling your friends, all things. Let's get back to it with my guy, Max Lugenfair. Thanks for having me on your show. What an honor. Well done creating such a whole life. Hmm. Like your home, like your work, your books, your nutrition, your the way you interact in relationships, like you've done a good job. Thank you, brother. I'm serious. Likewise. Do you feel that way about yourself? Do you, know, do you notice that? Do you have those reflections? I do. I'm very happy that I get to do what I love for a living. And I, I wake up every day grateful for that. It's the fact that I get to pay my bills doing what it is that I love. First of all, it allows me to focus on this this topic, which I've made my life purpose to better understand nutrition, lifestyle, how both of those factors relate to our health span, our risk for disease, our longevity. And they're infinitely complex. And I'm just, I feel like, chipping away at sort of one corner yeah. of what we know about those topics. But I wouldn't be able to focus on them if, if I wasn't able to make it my full-time job. Mm. So did you have any points in your life where you didn't feel like you wouldn't be where you're at now? Like the directions were kind of going into a <laughs> like a, a, a more shadowy, darker Ooh. fire and brimstone place. Or have you always kind of felt like you were in the going deep off the bat? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Definitely. I um I remember it was like 2013. I actually I actually applied to do a post back at NYU, which is a program where you take all of your prerequisites to apply to med school. 2013, I was like in my late 20s if not early 30s i don't i don't remember but i was in a place of career desperation and in tandem with that my mother was at the very beginning of showing signs and symptoms of what would ultimately be diagnosed as mm. dementia and so my career was in a tailspin i was wasn't making any money and i was in my late 20s early 30s and the person who i loved most in the world was starting to show signs of what is ultimately a terminal illness and yeah, I didn't know what I was going to do. So at that point, I cut the cord completely. I left LA. I severed ties with my agency. I moved back in with my mother, which is something that is not easy to do. 
you know, when you're at that age. And uh, I dedicated my life to, or I dedicated my, my, my life at that point to understanding what was going on with my mom, what could help her, if anything, what could be done to optimize my health now that I, I understood that I had this risk factor for developing dementia myself. And, um, and I had no idea at that point that it was ever going to be a career, let alone that I was going to write a book or have a podcast or anything like that. It was really just motivated out of the love that I had for my, for my mom and the passion that I had for nutrition science, which is something that I've always, that I've always had in my back pocket. But yeah, I mean, you know, at a certain point I realized that the best way to learn was to teach. And I started putting out content online and I started to hit different milestones that were assigned to me that I was on the right path. I realized that I was providing information that people weren't getting from elsewhere. I realized that I had an aptitude for understanding and communicating science, something that I was very passionate about. I realized that I had a, had a personal story something very emotive that drew people in. There were like all these different signs that I was on the right path. The Dr. Oz show discovered what it was that I was doing. They had me come on and talk about my research about dementia prevention and, and how nutrition relates to brain health. And I knew right away that what I was talking about, that I was good at what I was talking about, that I was doing it in a way that was very, that adhered to the science, but was, while it was also very well communicated. It was also with an air of authenticity and with an air of optimism and with, with a sort of youthful energy that is typically not associated with the people who communicate these kinds of topics. And then after that, I got a book deal and the book deal was something that, you know, I mean, I never, I never would have thought that I would, that I would be an author. I knew that I, I was always a good writer. I was told always that I was, a, that I had a strong voice in my writing. But that wasn't part of the plan at all. I just, I took a leap of faith and I thought that, I, you know, this is something that I could do and it would be something that could potentially help create a career for myself. Because at that point it wasn't, I didn't even, I didn't have a career. I just, you know, I was like just doing what I was passionate about, but I wasn't making any money. And I got the opportunity to write a book deal with Harper Wave and I wrote Genius Foods. It's something that I worked really hard on. And yeah, it ended up, it ended up just snowballing yeah. and uh, very grateful every day. I wonder what, I was listening to a thing from Alan Watts this morning and one of the things he, he mentioned in his little little talk was that at the time that he was doing the talk which was probably like the 80s or whatever he said what what we know about the mind and neuroscience and what's happening in between our ears is similar to what they knew about the galaxies in the 1300s hmm. you know so i think that we we like to have the belief that we you know we have this all sorted out and everything's all deduced and we understand really <laughs> yeah. what's going on here and then the reality if you really start to unpack the layers it's like most everything still is a mystery and the mind is is one of the maybe the, the greatest mysteries maybe it's the mystery ultimately because everything's being projected from there yeah and I, I think it's interesting your lens and perspective of, of how you've dug into cognitive decline and dementia and issues of the mind i wonder how your perspective has evolved oh yeah there, i mean there are so many unanswered questions and the brain is such a mysterious organ i mean my focus has been dementia over the past decade because that's what my mother had and i'll tell you that 90 percent of what we know about dementia has been discovered only in the past 15 years as i was bringing my mother from doctor's office to doctor's office experiencing what i've come to call diagnose and adios i learned uh, very early on about this cold joke that's actually circulated amongst neurology residents in uh, in medical school. And it's that neurologists don't treat disease, they admire it. Mm. And that's because the tools that we have at our disposal are so rudimentary mm. when it comes to treating these kinds of conditions, we barely understand them. 
I mean, we don't fully understand what causes heart disease. I mean, we have a good idea, but you know, we don't know. There are multiple theories as to as to why, for example, atherosclerosis develops. We don't know why we age. There are so many un- unanswered questions. So that's why I uh, I approach these topics with a with an open mind and a fiercely skeptical mind, especially when people make claims that fall outside of the lens of evolution and and you know what would pass the test of logic for example when people say that all animal products are bad for you i'm like how could you be so arrogant to say that i mean there's no vegan hunter-gatherer tribe there's we we certainly co-evolved with our food and that was inclusive of animal products and so yeah that's sort of my my approach on these topics all that is to say that there are so many more unanswered questions than there are answered questions. But that said, we are at a a place now where we do have enough answers to warrant action. We don't have to sit idly on our hands as we await further answers. I mean, we do sort of have at least uh, a semblance of a roadmap. And um, and that's sort of what I write about. I write about the knowns, the unknowns. And uh, I think that's important to like leave enough room for the gray so that answers can come out uh, and, and there's room for science to continue to evolve. I think it's interesting when we say things like we have a disease yeah you know like language is is meaningful and you know informs kind of our 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 perception of a thing and it also informs the way that we're able to perceive a thing based off of you know the words that we're using it's like a container for an idea and so when you say your mom had alzheimer's in my mind i wonder what that means to have alzheimer's to me that's that that feels like okay there's here's the alzheimer's there's your mom she's holding the alzheimer's is there does one express Alzheimer's? Does one exhibit Alzheimer's? Does one have Alzheimer's? Yeah, it's such a good point because once you've seen one case of Alzheimer's, you've seen one case of Alzheimer's. There, every presentation is different. And if you consider Alzheimer's disease to be the top of the mountain, there are innumerable roads up to the top. I mean, for some person, it could be metabolic in origin. For some person, it could be due to exposure to environmental toxicants that, that pulled the trigger. Ultimately, it comes back to epigenetics, which is the idea that we don't necessarily have a genetic destiny when it comes to these kinds of chronic non-communicable conditions. The manifestation of these disease states is the result of a dance that the environment plays with our genome. And everybody's environment is different and everybody's genome is different. We're now starting to understand that Alzheimer's disease is the result of polygenic risk factors commingled with an environment that pulls the triggers on that polygenic risk. So polygenic risk means there are multiple genes at play um, when it comes to determining whether or not somebody is going to develop a condition like Alzheimer's disease. And that's true for other conditions as well. But for example, you might have the APOE4 allele, which one in four people carry, which increases your risk anywhere between two and 14 fold, depending on how many copies of that, of that gene you carry. But you might have genes that are protective to some degree that, can, that are working to cancel out um, that risk factor. And we were just at the tip of the iceberg in terms of understanding, I mean, all the, all the roles that our various gene polymorphisms and mutations play. So yeah, that's why you're right. I mean, achieving a diagnosis, obviously it's something that we direly want when we are struck by one of these conditions and we're in the fog of war that chronic disease typically presents with. But a, but a diagnosis says nothing about the root cause of a condition. It says, you know, what medications we might 
choose to throw at it, but it doesn't say anything about the etiology of said condition. Yeah. Have you heard the, the Flynn effect before? It's just no. it's, essentially, it's just the, the, from my understanding, I was like looking it up this morning as I was like going through what's happening, particularly to, to culture, I think in the last couple of years, especially, but in the last, you know, decades since kind of like the technological era and how that's affected our IQ intelligence, you'd think that it would just make us super smart. You know, but then paradoxically, the, the the Flynn effect has been this this effect that's been measured of humans' IQs have just been going up gradually every year for years and years. And part of that could be, you know, teaching to the tests and kind of just changing the way that we're just because we're, we're better at taking tests doesn't mean that we're more intelligent. But IQs have been gradually raising. And then the last couple decades, IQs have actually been starting to fall. Mm. So it's like this reverse Flynn effect is happening. Interesting. Yeah, it's not. I mean, it's not. It hasn't been measured in like every country, but the particularly these ones were in like Finland and various different countries in Europe. I would imagine similar things happening in the United States. But I wonder the impact that technology is having on cognitive function. Yeah. And I wonder how, you know, distraction is, you know, it's it's pretty much like we're, <laughs> you know, that's everywhere. Yeah. So I wonder how that how that how that 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 organizes the mind. Yeah. I mean, when your devices are around a smartphone, I mean, this is something that we we've all experienced, right? When the smartphone is around, it exerts almost a gravitational pull on the orientation of attention. Like you're you're trying to focus on the task at hand, but there's like this pull towards your smartphone, right? It's like the pull to check your text messages, to check your emails, to look at your notifications, etc. So I think that that's definitely doing something to our to our brains. I mean, this notion that we can, that humans are effective multitaskers is kind of a myth. Like we're not actually, we're not actually great at multitasking. Yeah. And I think smartphones only make it more, more difficult to, uh, to do so. I think like there is this idea of collective consciousness. And I think that as a species, we are becoming more aware, you know, we are trending towards a greater collective awareness, but, um, awareness towards what towards, I don't know, like, you know, our brains evolved in a time when we, and I mean, our ancestors had to think linearly and locally, right? Where 30 steps equaled 30, like you'd be 30 steps away by taking 30 steps. But today we live in a world where technology advances exponentially. 30 steps equals a billion. Right. And our world is no longer local, it's global. And so I think that there's a cognitive cost that comes with that, but there's also a benefit. I think it's a double-edged sword. I mean, we're now more aware. I think thanks to technology, the doors of perception have in a way been opened, been forced open. And we're now aware of so much more than our ancestors have been tasked with having to be aware of. But it's like, how do we make sense of all that, of all that information, that incoming information in data, you know? So I think that there's a cost, but there's a benefit. I credit technology with being able to learn everything that I've learned about nutrition, right? Like I wouldn't be in the position that I'm in without the internet. I think that our health has improved due to technology, the fact that information has been democratized now, right? Like we live in a world where somebody like you has a megaphone and reaches millions of people potentially and can improve health for the better. Leverage the power of technology for human benefit. That's what I attempt to do, right? So I think there, there are definite benefits to, to technology, but there's also, def, there's also negatives in what it's done to our focus, to our attention. Um, I think we all need to develop more emotional grit these days because we're confronted with viewpoints that we might not necessarily agree with people that might you know it's a lot easier now to leave for example a hateful message 
um, and to, and to pick a fight essentially with somebody who you'd never, is something that you would never do in person. But, you know, thanks to the internet, it's, it's a lot more possible to, uh, leave negative comments on posts that you don't necessarily see eye to eye with. And I think that that takes an emotional toll. I mean, I'm, I'm guilty of reading my comments and I, I, you know, I'm pretty active on YouTube these days and I, I love to like look through the YouTube comments, which I shouldn't. And oftentimes, you know, I'll see a lot of positive comments, but then I'll see one that just like ruins my day. Yeah. And so I guess you got to take the good with the bad. I think that the, that technology is ultimately has been a net positive. What do you think the, 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 the strongest levers in optimizing cognitive function and preventing its decline are? And so the buckets might be exercise, you know, movement, nutrition, um, placement of attention. Yeah. Environmental conditions. You know, being like if we're if we're bathing in some type of chemicals or using deodorizers that are endocrine disruptors, or oh, there's yeah. a whole plethora of different potential assailants that could be kind of like taking us out. And there's also a lot of good stuff happening as well. Yeah. Even the idea that the world's taking you out is also a story and a narrative. Yeah. That has an impact on your cognitive function. Hundred percent. Which is very interesting. That gets into the conversation around like stress, fear. Oh yeah, stress yeah. is an indiscriminate killer. Stress is a big problem, but I would say the biggest leverage points. I mean, I think first off, if you were only to make one lifestyle modification, it would be, I would say, move more and get more exercise in because from a from an evidence, a weight of the evidence standpoint, I mean, exercise really is medicine for the brain. Probably outside, too, would be good if you could do it. If you could do it outside. Yeah. And there are a number of reasons for that, which um, I could talk about. But off the top of my head, you know, when you're sedentary, blood literally drains from your brain and just brief movement, getting up, taking a walk, a two minute walk for every half an hour that you're sitting down normalizes brain perfusion, cerebral perfusion, which is blood flow to the brain. Then, you know, taking it one step further, exercise we know helps increase the expression of a miracle grow protein in the brain called BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which helps promote the growth of new brain cells while also fortifying and strengthening your pre-existing ones. So really important growth factor in the brain that we have a ton of evidence on in terms of exercise. There was a, a study that found that I believe it was it was either one or two years of aerobic exercise led to an increase of about 1% in middle-aged patients of the hippocampus, which is the memory processing center of the brain. And that the, the hippocampus usually shrinks by one to 2%. So that's a 2% swing determined by basically your decision to be more active or not. And this isn't like backbreaking exercise. This is like mild to moderate aerobic exercise. So BDNF is, is really impor- important. Exercise is also crucially important from the standpoint of vascular health for a number of different reasons, but the brain relies on vascular health. So actually one of the first features, one of the first systems to go awry, in dementia, certainly in Alzheimer's disease, but also in vascular dementia, which is the second most common form of dementia, is vascular dysfunction. Dysfunction of the bed of vasculature that that supplies blood, nutrients, oxygen, calories to the brain. And so maintaining a healthy blood pressure is crucially important. There is a a pivotal study, clinical trial that was published just a couple of years ago called the Sprint Mind Trial that found that when patients with hypertension, so hypertension is the medical term for high blood pressure, were treated medically with medicine for their high blood pressure, there was a a dramatically reduced risk of these patients for developing mild cognitive impairment, which is a common form of cognitive impairment, often considered pre-dementia, usually converts to more severe forms of cognitive impairment like Alzheimer's disease. And they found that normalizing blood pressure in those patients was a disease-modifying intervention. It basically prevented MCI, mild cognitive impairment. There was a a meta-analysis that came out in 2018 that found that exercise for patients with high blood pressure is just as effective as medication. 
You just have to exercise. And the guidelines are about 150 minutes a week of moderate intensity exercise. On the same, really similar, there's been various different meta-analyses on this as well in relation to depression. Oh, yeah. So comparing it to Zoloft and various different antidepressants. It's oh, like, yeah. Oh, it's like exercise as good, you know, and then obviously that's not to, to just say that, you know, it, it's to conclude that all antidepressants or anti-anxieties are just like bad, but hopefully whoever you're communicating with, whatever doctor, like they're also aware of um, yeah. your own inherent levers that you can pull on, you know, and not just be committed to you know, the solution is some, you know, pill that you put into your face. Yeah. The efficacy of antidepressant drugs is mediated by the severity of the depression. So the more severe the depression, the more effective the drugs tend to be. Mm. Mild to moderate depression, you should absolutely try cleaning up your diet and exercising more as a, as a primary means of treatment. And I, I, I don't like to place stigma on, on pharmaceuticals. I yeah, think some, some people need them, yeah. but that's what the data says that from mild to moderate depression, um, exercise is medicine. It really is medicine. I mean, it floods your brain with a neuro, a cocktail of neurochemicals. BDNF is actually also depressed in depressed patients by, I believe about 50%. So mm. BDNF plays a role in essentially, I mean, you could think about it this way. It helps the brain. And I don't like to use the term rewire because it doesn't really, it, it's not like you're, you know, the brain isn't like a, a electrical circuit, an electrical circuit switchboard, you know, yeah. but it does in a sense help the brain in terms of its plasticity, which can create new pathways around, you know, old stagnant ones. You know, if you have trauma, for example, they've done a lot of, they're doing a lot of research now with um, psychedelic drugs like psilocybin. And these drugs also promote neuroplasticity. So, you know, helping the brain sort of helping you get around, circumvent the pathways that might be linked to trauma in your brain. Yeah. BDNF can help, um, can help do that, can help uh, further that goal. And that's not to, you know, without mentioning even like the endorphins and the fact that exercise boosts serotonin in the brain, which is a neurotransmitter that we associate with feeling good. Dopamine, which is the reward uh, neurotransmitter. So yeah, from, from the standpoint of mental health, I mean, exercise is, is, is profound. It helps balance GABA glutamate. So GABA is like nature's Valium and, uh, and that system gets sort of out of whack and people prone to anxiety. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a really powerful modality and blood pressure, I think is like one of these, these super important modifiable risk, risk factors. If you're prone to high blood pressure, I mean, you should absolutely be exercising. Also, I mean, you should do this, I should say, under the supervision of a doctor because exercise, especially resistance training, does increase your blood pressure while you're exercising, but it then will drop it below baseline, similarly to what it does to inflammation. You'll see an acute spike in inflammatory markers like pro-inflammatory cytokines, IL-6 and things like that in the, in the window immediately post-exercise. Also, you know, you'll see that with a sauna, but then you'll see a, a drop because part of the signaling that you know is completely physiologically normal that your body uses to adapt to exercise and heat immersion and things like that the signaling is is basically inflammatory um in origin there's like an an inflammatory effect and your body senses that and then it goes to repair and that's how you develop strength and vigor and and resilience i want to take a moment and share what has become to be one of my favorite morning beverages that is organifi's green juice i love this stuff one of the first ingredients is wheatgrass which is something i love to get from fancy grocery stores just little shots of it it's got all the greens you could possibly want in one green juice a bunch of superfoods bunch of deliciousness and i like to put it on some ice stir it up and i find it to be a fantastic little antioxidant rich pick-me-up if you want to get yourself some 
some green juice from Organifi, you can go to Organifi.com slash align for 20% discount. That's Organifi, O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com slash align for a 20% discount on your greens. I also want to share something that has been invaluable to my sleep. That is magnesium from Mag Breakthrough. What I love about this stuff is it contains all seven different forms of magnesium. Magnesium is one of those things that we just need to supplement in modern culture. Kind of sadly, I would say, because it's largely devoid or deficient in our soil. So a lot of the food that you would typically get adequate magnesium from, it just doesn't have enough. So I take magnesium as a supplement and it's helpful with sleep. It's helpful with muscular repair, restoration, general healing of your nervous system, tonicity. And I really love the stuff. I think you guys are going to dig it. You can get yourself a sweet discount by going to magbreakthrough.com slash align podcast that's m-a-g-b-r-e-a-k-t-h-r-o-u-g-h.com forward slash line podcast 15 percent off of your purchase if you do not love this if it does not improve your sleep does not make you feel like a better person then get your money back 100 money back guarantee magbreakthrough.com forward slash align podcast it's interesting the you know there's there's it seems pretty obvious and there's you know a ton of research to suggest that movement is like the solution for a lot of things including cognitive decline yeah. and and depression and you know all the things and then at the same time the complete absolute opposite side of the spectrum from at least like a musculoskeletal mechanical lens of complete utter stillness seems to have really similar effects you know like meditation yeah you know so you're talking about moving and you know perforating blood and all the all the different the tissue in the brain and it's like well and it, that being supportive with increasing the gray matter around the hippocampus and maybe decreasing around the amygdala and decreasing stress response, all that stuff from getting out there and moving the body and shaking and wiggling. And then also, if you do absolutely nothing, that hmm. seems to be really supportive, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the difference is absolutely nothing. Right. Like valuing the nothing. Yeah. You know, so you can't. Well, you can do whatever you want. But it's the it's the that liminal blurry. I'm kind of doing something, kind of not. Mm. That's I think really that's like where m- modern culture in large part is 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 kind of swimming in because there's always something to kind of do. Yeah, kind of resting. You're kind of exercising. You're kind of checking your phone. You're kind of listening to a podcast. You're kind of listening to music. You're kind of thinking about your bill. You're kinda- yeah, <laughs> and and you're not doing any of those things effectively. Like, are you are you really resting? Is your body resting when you're sitting on the couch scrolling through Instagram? Yeah, you know, I would argue no. You're probably stimulating to some degree a stress response in your body on Instagram because that's what that's how those apps keep you glued to the apps right like that's why the media abides by the if it bleeds it leads mandate mm. it's like if you are a stress response keep you keeps you glued to the stimulus it's a very evolutionarily purposeful response that we have to things that trigger us and to stress us and so um and also there's a negativity bias on social media as well so the algorithm the posts that tend to get the most comments tend to be the most triggering obviously yeah and those are the ones that then will get favored in the newsfeed although i hear instagram is reverting back to a chronological algorithm which i think could be potentially helpful from the standpoint of mental health i think that's a good Mm. that seems like progress I always get confused when people, when people post a thing like my cat died and I'm like, do I give it a little heart? Like, how am I supposed to respond to this? Yeah. Do I like it? <laughs> do I like how, this? How, 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 yeah. Well, it's perplexing. 
I think it comes back to, I think it comes back to, well, the yin and yang, the body engenders, you know, this ancient Chinese concept of yin and yang in so many different ways. We have the glutamatergic and GABAergic neurotransmitter sort of balance. We have the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous response. And so that I think is, we need to embody rest and digest and fight or flight in our lives as well. Like we need to go to the gym and we need to activate the sympathetic nervous system by strengthening our bodies and, and engendering that side of the coin. And then we also need to adequately engender the rest and digest state, the sitting still meditating, calming our minds. I think that they're both crucially important and they're important for different reasons. I mean, I'm a totally novice meditator, but I do it as often as I can will myself to, and, and I see benefit from it. I think it's interesting that, uh, yeah, I think that, that the having you know, yin yang in the form of like just having that, that allowing the, 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 the pendulum to truly swing from a light perspective, I think is really interesting. Like during the day, we're kind of getting sunlight in the form of LED lights and, you know, various different blue lights inside of buildings. Yeah. And then at nighttime, we're kind of getting darkness, but we're still getting hit by some green lights and some blue lights and some your cell phone thing and maybe the TV and maybe the little, you know, so there's that, that same concept of that liminal gray. It's kind of light outside. It's kind of dark inside. Is there any, have you looked into anything in relation to the value of full spectrum light and then also darkness in relation to cognitive, you know, neurological repair? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of great researchers that are that are bringing this idea into the fold. Sachin Panda is one who comes to mind at the Salk Institute. He's doing a lot of research on circadian biology, and he was part of the team that discovered, I believe, the suprachiasmatic nucleus, which is the time setter in the brain, in the hypothalamus, that basically becomes activated when our eyes are exposed to bright light, a thousand lux in intensity or higher. And that's sort of what um, sets forth the 24-hour timer that we call our circadian rhythm. And every organ system is under the influence of the circadian rhythm. That's what makes it so exciting. The brain, for example, at night is when the brain, the brain's glymphatic system is activated. And that's the system I'm sure you've talked about it many times on the podcast. I'm sure we've even talked about it together on your podcast, but it's when the brain is cleaning itself, essentially, of the proteins that, that we all create in our brains that have the tendency to aggregate and clump and form the plaques that we associate with Alzheimer's disease. And that's something that doesn't happen during the day. It happens at night. Yeah. I call it a neurological douche. A neurological douche. Yeah. <laughs> A brain douche. <laughs> Good luck searching for that in PubMed, by the way. It's uh but since it will be the name of this podcast episode, we'll, yeah. we'll at least the brain douche. At least something will come up. People might think that you're that you're referring to me. <laughs> Which uh that would suck. Yeah. So I mean that that obviously plays a role in in brain health. You know, we want to keep our brains as as pristine as possible, and and part of that has to do with keeping these these proteins from aggregating and, and misfolding and forming these plaques and tangles. We're at our most alert during the day. That is something that light exposure in the daytime can help facilitate. It helps boost serotonin in our brains. There's actually, I mean, there's, there are many reasons why just getting outside um, is beneficial from a brain health standpoint. So, I mean, getting outside first thing in the morning and exposing our eyes to 
the ambient light of the sun sets forth the circadian clock, which dictates when our digestive system is going to be the most efficient, when our metabolisms are going to be the most efficient. We tend to be more insulin sensitive, for example, in the daytime. It's when our brains are primed to be at their most resourceful and analytical and creative because during the day, you know, prior to the advent of artificial light, during the day is when the business would happen, right? It's when we'd have to forage for food, hunt, find new um opportunities for domicile for for living that would all happen during the day it wouldn't happen at night so our brains are primed to, to be at their most creative at, at that point in the day and it also that influences how well we sleep later on in the night it influences when uh, melatonin starts to be secreted by the pineal gland which helps us wind down melatonin also by the way is one of you know nature's fountain fountains of youth it's one of the most powerful um, antioxidants in the body it's actually we've seen play a role in how people treat themselves from with with covid i actually took a melatonin supplement when i had covid and uh the thinking there is that melatonin is like this this really important detoxifying compound mm. it's not just like a sleeping drug and so that's that's all dictated by by light and you know one of the major ways in which light light can also suppress its release later on in the day which we talked about a little bit but getting light, bright light in the morning is super important exposure to the sun we know helps our bodies create vitamin d Vitamin D is a really important hormone which affects gene function, you know, in many different ways. About 5% of the human genome is uh, under the influence of vitamin D, which is a steroid hormone. Um, many of us don't have adequate, adequate levels of vitamin D, but it plays a role in preventing autoimmunity. Um, it's important for healthy cognitive function, preventing dementia. Vitamin D is actually one of the top um, environmental, low vitamin D, vitamin D deficiency is one of the top environmental risk factors for the development of, dement of dementia. Mm exposure to the sun helps create nitric oxide in our blood vessels, which helps to um, support vascular health, which as I mentioned, is so important from the standpoint of the brain. Being out in nature reduces stress, which we talked about. Stress can have a negative, chronic protracted stress can have a negative effect on the hippocampus, which is the memory processing center of the brain. It boosts immune function. There's an increase in natural killer cells when we're exposed to nature. There have been studies that have shown that being exposed to nature when controlling for all other variables boosts metabolic health, which we know is so important. About one in 10 adults these days has good metabolic health. Nine in 10 adults have some sign of metabolic illness. So, I mean, I think that that's, that's super important, plays a role there. Also reduces sensitivity to pain. To pain, yeah, that, doesn't, that doesn't surprise me. Yeah, yeah, so many, so many reasons to, to get out and spend more time in nature. And I'm, you know, I'm not perfect. Like, I think that you, you definitely do a great I, job. I am, I am perfect. Well, you practice what you preach, <laughs> I think, um, in the, in the lifestyle sense. I practice what I preach in the, in the, you know, I'm very good at practicing what I preach in the nutrition and exercise sense of things, but I don't spend as much time in nature as I would, you know, I think I'm just lazy as I would like to. I think I'm just distracted and lazy and the things that make me feel good are like typically outside. Yeah. But a lot of it's just, you know, it's, I think a lot of it's just, I'm just a highly distracted person. You think so? Oh yeah, for sure. I'm just like a, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I was born in New York city, so I'm an urbanite. So for me, it's, it's not as hardwired into who I am to, to want to like get mm -hmm. out into nature and go for a hike. It's like, you know, there's like a mental hurdle that I feel like I have to get over. Yeah. I have like an addiction, <laughs> I have like a nature addiction where I don't awesome. feel well. Like yeah. if you put me in a, in a, you know, have you heard of the, the rat park experiments in, 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 uh, British Columbia no. in relation to, you've heard of like rats becoming wildly addicted to cocaine and just throwing their little yeah, rat yeah. lives away. And just, yeah. you know, like, <laughs> rats love cocaine. <laughs> 
fact. <laughs> but actually, not a fact. They, Those they, little party animals. Yeah, the, the, the rat park experiment was done. It was a while ago. I think it was like the 60s or 70s, but maybe the 80s. We got to look up the, the year that it happened. But you can look up Rat Park, British Columbia, is Vancouver particularly. And what the researchers found there was that the rats were pretty darn disinterested in cocaine if you provided them with a, like a meaningful lifestyle. Wow. So you get like a little rat girlfriend in there. Yeah. You get like, you know, a little rat PlayStation, a little rat, you know, just like a little pool, like have like a set the vibe. Yeah. So a little the vibe. rat feng shui. A little rat record player. Yeah. <laughs> lava lamp. Then <laughs> suddenly there's not this this interest in the drug. Wow. Which is pretty fascinating. That is fascinating. Yeah, I definitely, I mean, we've gone on hikes, but it's not, it's <laughs> evidence. Yeah, there's, I, I get, a, I get, a, I'm certainly grateful whenever I do, but it's just like, I'd, I'd rather, like, I feel very comfortable, like in a gym indoors. I love like being in a gym. Yeah, I'm the opposite. Yeah. The original, the, I think that the Greek meaning for gymnasium is exercising naked outside. Wow. <laughs> I don't know where I'd be able to do that in LA. I feel like I feel like you would just do that like wherever. Have you ever worked out naked? No, I've never worked out naked. Because <laughs> how do you protect? You got to protect the family. I feel like it's a risk to the to the some to the wedding tackle. Some kettlebell swing? <laughs> I don't know. It's like <laughs> seems like a liability. No. Oh. I mean, yeah, I've never worked out naked. I like working out shirtless. I do like working out shirtless outside. Oh yeah. Well. Indoors too. I like working out shirtless. I like working out shirtless. I will say that. Certainly maskless. Oh yeah. Mask. I know. Come on. Yeah. Holy shit. LA. What are we doing? No, it's bad. Not, <laughs> o- not only that, but the CDC just conceded that cloth masks don't even work very it's so, well, right? It's so ridiculous. It's so ridiculous. And that's what I've been freaking suffering with over my face for the past two years in the gym. I found it actually kind of fine because I almost exclusively peek my little nose out. Of course, me too. You know? And yeah. so then we get into like this whole other conversation of nose breathing. So I think that the optimistic side of me sees masks actually as like um, like an, an, an educator or like a, a, a tool to uh, helping to facilitate nose to facilitate breathing. nose breathing, yeah, which which is great for you. However, when the mask is properly worn, I feel like it hinders nose breathing. Oh, yeah. So for people that are wearing masks the way that they're supposed to be worn, really you know yeah. um, I, was wa- I was watching a, a, a video that was like a compilation of all of the the, the democratic candidates poo-pooing on masks mm-hmm. and poo-pooing on vaccines and poo-pooing on like anything that trump was potentially recommending yeah you know and then fast forward to mm-hmm. the point where suddenly they're in office it's like oh no no now it's it's not only is it you know, it's not only is it a good thing, but it's a mandatory thing. Oh, yeah. The the po- politicization of all this stuff is disgusting. I wish I could just opt out, opt out entirely. But I don't know how we're able to trust anything. Yeah. Like it, like the only evidence that we absolutely have is the things that we are told change with quickness. Yeah. Like what you were told in this point, at least, you know, evidently going back to you know before all of this stuff with with lockdowns and everything. But it I mean it changes. It seems like almost like monthly. Oh yeah. So how can you be so confident about what you're told now? No, I know. Which then gets into the conversation of like how much 
investment do we have in our own intuition you know and like in our own like listening to what feels right for us as opposed to waiting to be told what to do yeah it's an interesting dance yeah i posted way back in early april 2020 that on instagram i posted that the virus is here to stay which mm. back then that was some that idea was something that triggered apparently a lot of people i got a lot of heat for that post on instagram i got a lot of people unfollowed me i said the virus is here to stay the best way and this is pre-vaccine availability i said the best way to stay safe and healthy is to do the things that make your body stronger spend more time outside exercise more eat healthy sleep well de-stress all that stuff but the to suggest that the virus was on track to becoming endemic was something that was like you know blasphemous at the time yeah fear-mongering maybe even but <laughs> it's insane to me that people you know think it's like magical thinking that somehow we're going to eradicate a respiratory virus right. that it's just going to be gone it's yeah. not going to be it's here it's going to be the flu like it's gonna be like the flu yeah and omicron is like a, a you know i want to just like repeat what others have said so correct me if like this has been just like beaten to death on your podcast but no it has we the, the fact that it's becoming more transmissible but less severe less virulent i think is like an amazing it's thing it's a blessing news. in disguise yeah. yeah it's phenomenal news yeah so so i think that's a good thing it's going to help us potentially knock on wood get to a state of natural herd immunity i feel like the analogy is like at what point i'm doing this analogy for the first time so hopefully it comes out okay but if you're if it's raining outside and you know you're being nudged into a pool yeah. and you know it's like at what point do you just decide to learn how to swim mm. and accept that you're bathing in all of the things yeah you know, as opposed to coming from this place of getting out the umbrellas. No, now the rain's coming in from the side. Okay, so we get some plastic bubbles on the side here. And then, you know, like running away from the rain. It's like it's you've been bathing in this since the beginning of ever. Yeah. You know, so at what point do you do culturally, do we make a shift towards educating people on how to how to swim as opposed to protecting them from water? Yeah. I mean, fighting frailty, I think, is uh will do so much for public health. And I know that's one of the one of the focuses of, of your podcast, you know, to to get us all to a state of greater resilience. But just going back to brain health, I mean, frailty is one of those things that is so important to the brain. There was a study that came out just published found that frailty for people who are at high genetic risk for developing Alzheimer's disease, frailty was sort of the linchpin. So for adult older adults that were more frail, they were at three times the risk of developing Alzheimer's disease compared to people with the same heightened genetic risk for developing Alzheimer's disease, wow. but they had their risk slashed by two thirds. So threefold risk determined solely by how frail you are of a person. Wow. Same, and, same with cardiovascular disease in relation to grip strength. There's that's yeah. there's like popular research about that. I include that in my book, actually. That's a, a better indicator of cardiovascular disease than blood pressure. It's grip strength. You got your hearty grip strength. It's like your, your body probably works pretty decent. Yeah. Hundred percent, and that's not an indication. So then, what happens there is we may myopically focus on okay, cool. There's something about the fingertips or the wrist. You got to get you know some type of workout thing for the wrist. It's like no, no, no. It's an indication that you use your body in such a way, yeah, that cultivates strength in your hands. It's like a surrogate marker, correct? Yeah, surrogate marker for vigor. Yeah, and the same could be said about COVID risk for COVID. Yeah, I mean we live in a in a in a time of widespread frailty of widespread metabolic disease mm. so that's my prayer if you will for you know for for the people of this world you know to like to to foster greater resilience and the way to do that is to do the uncomfortable things and uh whether it's exercise 
cleaning up your freaking diet. I mean, 60% of the calories that we consume today come from ultra processed foods. Now, granted, some people live in food deserts, right? So for some people, some people don't have the kinds of access that we have. You live in Austin. I live in Los Angeles. We have access to, you know, there's like a Whole Foods every, every three miles, right? So we're very lucky. But, but that being said, I mean, you know, thanks to the internet, thanks to just getting this information out there. I mean, there, there are simple things that anybody can do, no matter where in the world they find themselves, that, that can help foster this, the kind of resilience that we're talking about. Yeah. I want to take a moment and share something that has been a game changer for my sleep and especially for my dreams. My dreams before were like a three out of 10 as far as clarity. When I use Quality Night, they like jump up to like a 10 out of 10. It's really wild. It's a very interesting experience. I quite enjoy it. Uh, it's also helpful with me falling asleep faster. Got reishi mushrooms, ashwagandha, hawthorn, saffron, and 20 other research-backed ingredients in one serving for maximum support of your sleep cycles and waking up feeling as recharged, refreshed, and energized as you have in years. You can also, if you're a first-time buyer, you get 50% off by going to neurohacker.com. And if you use the align code, you get an additional 15% off. So use a line code for an extra 15% off. Website is N-E-U-R-O-H-A-C-K-E-R.com. Use a line at checkout for a discount and get a total of 65% off if you're a first-time user. Enjoy your sleep. I so greatly appreciate you outlining all of that. I feel like that was like the the perfect bundle of information that I would love to I'm, you know, digest even deeper myself and also provide for the podcast. I want to go into the nutritional end and particularly because you have a, a book mm. that is on the way. Yeah. Genius Kitchen. Genius Kitchen. Your book right machine. Thanks, man. Thank you so, for helping me spread the word to your to your wonderful audience. Yeah, of course. But so so within that, um, I want to learn about the book, but I also want to more specifically focus on nutrition is is one of the invaluable levers to get the body to be in a state to be ready to move and be mm-hmm. available to move and have like the the clarity and the energy and you know like the the, the chutzpah the joie de vivre to like get the hell out of bed absolutely so if we're chronically in front inflamed and that, i think that's an interesting question as well as the, the relationship that food actually has on on postural patterns and, and movement because i think you know there's a lot of things that we can eat coffee might be a very obvious example you, know, you do way too much caffeine you might literally have an embodied sensation of anxiety. You might suddenly you start grinding your teeth or your master muscles might be engaged or your shoulders might be coming up or you might be like gripping the table. So you put a thing in your face and suddenly there's this musculoskeletal kinesthetic outward expression. So that's far into the spectrum, obvious, like, well, I can see that person's kind of like chattering in their body. What if we draw that back? How does food tune our bodies from your perspective? And if you've never thought about this as being a thing, so, you know, it won't be like, I don't expect like, aha, I've actually written a whole, no, a whole I thesis mean, on this. Well, food, food is so important and we could talk about nutrition from a myriad of different angles, but I mean, really the, the, what compelled me to want to write a cookbook is the fact that knowing how to cook and eating home right there before we even get into the basics of nutrition or any of my recipes or anything like that is one of the major lever leverage points that a person has on their health. Studies show that people who eat home more often have uh, healthier BMIs, so healthier body composite. Well, BMI doesn't quite measure body composition, but in general, they're at lower risk for obesity. They have better metabolic health, better cardiovascular health, better family dynamics. So, I mean, this is something that 
I wasn't even aware on the research of this before I began writing, but it's something that was very important to my mother growing up that the family would eat together every night. I mean, there were obviously some nights where we didn't, but for the most part, I mean, every night I remember sitting around the, the table with my family and, and sharing a meal. And it's one of the reasons why I'm, we've always been so close, my family. Yeah, I come from a really small family and eating dinner together, crucially, crucially important. But from the standpoint of health, I mean, the same meal cooked at home is going to have less calories, less sodium, less unhealthy fats, right? Because restaurants are notorious for using cheap, unhealthy oils like canola oil, vegetable oil in air quotes. Yeah. I want to add that there's a, a just an aside there. It's interesting because I'm like obviously biased and obsessed with this whole how stuff moves us. Yeah. It's interesting that that that's moving you towards your family and moving you towards your community. And food is kind of the anchor point to move you into that space. Oh yeah. Which Cooking, is very which is very cool. I mean how many times have we cooked a meal together. It's like, yeah, we've like, I mean, we're really close friends and I feel like cooking a meal together second, maybe to exercising together. But I would say cooking a meal together is even more, more of like a a bonding experience. It's like the closest thing we have to a bonfire. It is. Yeah. In modernity. Yeah. You know, bonfire, you sit around, you all just kind of stare into the fire. Yeah. And suddenly stories come out. Yeah. You know, maybe somebody's got a guitar, you know, whatever. And it's just like, what are we doing? It's just, we're just here together. You know, we're with the fire. Since we don't really have much bonfires, most of us, it's like we have, you know, a a pot of stew. Yeah. (laughs) Never make, never letting you make a salad in my house again. But I digress. The audience doesn't need to know about your salad <laughs> proclivities. <laughs> is it because I touched the salad or is it because of the olive oil? No, I'm a big olive oil it's guy. because you we were making sausages. Oh, I put some sausages in the salad. You didn't like that. You like cut them up and put them in the salad. <laughs> I like turned away for three minutes. And these, these amazing sausages, I forget where they're from, Belcampo or something. Like at the time. Yeah. yeah. Rest, in, rest in peace, Belcampo. They were cut up and in the salad and it was, yeah. Yeah. If you turn away for any more than two minutes, sausages will be infused into most dishes. Oh, God. <laughs> That's <laughs> never my again. That's my rule. But it was fun. We had a good laugh. Yeah, it was a good time. We had a lot of leftover salad. A lot of leftover. <laughs> but it's fine. Yeah. I'm fine. Yeah, we're fine. Um, so yeah, cooking at home is a major, major leverage point. Super, super important. Now from the standpoint of nutrition, you know, I'm big on plants and animals. I think that from a, from the standpoint of protein and brain health and body health, I mean, we were talking about frailty, getting good quality animal protein more than what the RDA recommend, than what the RDA is for protein, I think is crucially important. I'm a big fan of high quality animal proteins. And it's not just because of the protein that animal products contain. It's because of the myriad of other nutrients, many of which are actually under consumed um, in the standard American diet that they that they come with nutrients like vitamin B12, um, low vitamin B12 levels associated with depression, with cognitive decline, great source of zinc, great source of iron. Um, If we're talking about beef and fish, creatine, other B vitamins, there's so many benefits to eating properly raised animal proteins. And then from the standpoint of of preventing muscle breakdown and promoting muscle protein synthesis, which are both crucially important to, you know, maintaining resilience as we get older, um, you just can't beat the concentration of essential amino acids in animal protein, the concentration of leucine, the fact that in general, protein is highly concentrated in animal products. You don't have a lot of calories from carbohydrates in animal products. I mean, you could get a lot of fat calories, but depending, that depends on the cut of animal that you're eating. So I'm a big fan of, of, of that. When it comes to, you know, the evidence on dementia prevention, 
There are studies that have shown us, observational studies, I'll caveat, but that choline consumption is associated with about a 30% reduced risk for developing dementia. And choline is found most abundantly in animal products, primarily eggs. Egg yolks are a great source of, of choline. And choline provides the backbone to the neurotransmitter acetylcholine, which is important for learning and memory. And patients with Alzheimer's disease will actually take drugs to try to augment levels of acetylcholine um, in the brain. So... Mm. Big fan of choline, again, only found in animal products and all of the other, all of the other myriad nutrients that they contain. Protein for people above 65, protein consumption is associated with greater longevity, reduced risk of cancer, reduced amyloid burden in the brain. So there are all these, all these benefits, I think, to, uh, to building a diet around that. And then from the vegetables and fruit and vegetable standpoint, um, and then also nuts, I guess, which are, which are plant material as well. I'm not a carnivore either, even though I'm carnivore Jason, I can certainly speak to the benefits of animal products. I think that plants are super, super important, whether we're talking about fiber and fiber's ability to nurture gut bacteria, which is so important, or the phytochemicals in plants that help to bolster our resilience from the inside, you know, whether we're talking about polyphenols or, you know, compounds like sulforaphane, which we get when we, when we chew cruciferous vegetables, I think these are all you know, important, important chemicals to, to consider integrating for holistic health. I'm particularly a fan of compounds called carotenoids, which are found in colorful produce. So dark leafy greens are a great source, avocados. These compounds actually have been known for many decades at this point to fortify ocular tissue. So like uh, in particular, lutein and zeaxanthin, we've known can accumulate in the macula, which is a portion of the retina, which is responsible for central vision. And lutein and zeaxanthin have been, it's been known for some time that they help prevent age-related macular degeneration. Well, eyes are an extension of the brain. Your eyes are actually neural tissue. And we now know that levels of these two carotenoids in the macula correlate very closely with levels in the brain. And that these same compounds can actually fortify brain tissue and prevent um, lipid peroxidation, which is really important um, for keeping the uh, neuronal membrane healthy, associate very closely with cognitive health, reduce risk for, for cognitive decline, and also have been shown in studies. There's one study in particular that, uh, that I typically cite from University of Georgia that has found that when young healthy college students supplement with these compounds, lutein and zeaxanthin, 12 milligrams a day, that they see an improvement in their visual processing speed, which is like, if you think about reaction time and things like that, it's a super important aspect of our cognitive, of our cognitive function. And these Carotenoids are found most abundantly in plant foods. Kale is actually the top source, and a lot of people don't like kale. But um, with like one cup of cooked kale, I believe you get about twenty-four milligrams of combined lutein and zeaxanthin. So, is it come? Is it about the preparation of these foods? Because the you know certain plants, their defense mechanisms to, pre to predators would be you know, chemical defense mechanisms. Yeah, but you can steam or pressure cook or ferment or is it would that be the case with kale or are you not on the side of the fence that, that well a kale having any issues a plant's def a, a chemical that a plant develops to defend itself from you know a fungus or a mouse is not gonna do much to you um in a negative sense right because the dose makes the poison when talking about these toxins mm. um and the idea that low doses of compounds that would be toxic in high doses can actually serve can play a beneficial effect to an organism that is the central thesis underlying hormesis right. and and <laughs> hormetic stress right so the interesting thing is is that many of these compounds aren't even that bioavailable they work via their influence on the microbiome and so certain compounds poly certain polyphenols for example in pomegranate are beneficial to us in an indirect way they're beneficial to us because gut bacteria 
actually will ferment these compounds, these, these quote unquote toxic compounds, and then churn out metabolites like urolithin A, right? Which is one of them that there's been a lot of research on, on urolithin A, which is this neuroprotective metabolite churned out by a certain species of gut bacteria when we consume pomegranate. So, so they provide, they provide a, a fermentable substrate to gut bacteria and, you know, they bolster our health in that way. And that's sort of indirect way. As you're um, we got we got to wrap this thing up. So one of like in summation of the Max Lugavere cookbook. Yeah. Um, who is it for? Like what's what's like the what's the who would this be the most supportive for any human being? Like is it is it? Yeah, uh, it's for anybody who wants to boost the way that their brain works, enhance their mental health, foster body resilience. And basically, here's why I'm so proud of this book is that it's not just a cookbook so we have over 100 recipes that are super delicious whatever diet plan you're on if you're plant-based if you're a carnivore well probably not so easily if you're a carnivore but pescatarian all of the dishes can be um, customized to your own preferences but full of delicious dishes that use easy to find low cost highly accessible ingredients and the each recipe places at its center a food that I call a genius food. So a food that is essentially a powerful brain food, whether it's because of the abundance of high quality protein or omega-3 fatty acids or these carotenoids that we're talking about or, you know, other types of healthy fats. Um, each one of them, each, re- each recipe basically serves like a purpose. And I talk about that in the book, but cool. it's not just a recipe book. It's a resource guide. So the first 150 pages of the book, I break down every single food component, whether we're talking about dairy or meat or fish or eggs or plants or the different kinds of salts or vinegars. There are each food category is basically broken down and I go into detail on sometimes the history or how, you know, from a culinary standpoint, we would utilize each ingredient. Uh, There's a list of what to look for when buying certain certain of these products, uh, what to steer away from. And then there's a section on how to optimize digestion, because if you're not digesting your food properly, then it's all going in the toilet anyway. Right. So you really want to like optimize your ability to extract nutrition from these from these dishes. So it's sort of like an all in one book. If you've never read any of my books before, Genius Kitchen is a great, great place to start. Right. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Your mind is impressive. Thanks, man. I would say the same about yours. You're very handsome. Thanks, man. Likewise. Very attracted to you. Thanks. I I appreciate it. (laughs) It it means a lot. I'm... I've called you an Adonis many times on my show. So people know, people know my, my feelings. If only you were a chick. Yeah, I know that would work out. Yeah. Um, what's the, what's the primate that's got a very large clitoris and they actually will penetrate other, other, other primates with their, with their clit? Ooh, I don't know. Oh, we got to look that that's up. That's a thing. Yeah. Wow. What very, a way to, what a way to end the podcast. Very <laughs> Jesus. We need a, a, a Jamie or uh yes. we, we need someone to help us out with these. Somebody. <sighs> well, when you find out, let me know. <laughs> I'll be waiting on bated breath for the primate with the large, large penetrative largest, clitoris. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If anybody knows out there, listeners, reach out to uh, reach out to somebody. Yeah. Let thanks. somebody know about that. Thanks for that. Yeah. <laughs> So Genius Kitchen. Genius Kitchen. You can get it at GeniusKitchenBook.com. Yeah. I also have my own podcast. It's called The Genius Life. And uh, I'm active on Instagram. Max Lugavir. Oh, bam. And then uh, OnlyFans. Be the other. OnlyFans, yeah. That's the, 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 yeah. where it makes his living. I show my, my, my glutes. <laughs> 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 all right thank you very much thank you all for tuning in uh go grab genius kitchen um i think that that sounds like a, a really tremendous perfect resource to understand the 
think it's really important to understand like the the raw materials that our bodies are composed of and having a, a breakdown guide of all the individual ingredients. I'm immensely excited to get to get into that. I haven't actually gotten to hold the copy because they're not printed yet, but it sounds like the perfect resource. So it's like a coffee table book too. It's going to look beautiful. It's like printed on really expensive, like it's not an expensive book, but it's printed on really like high quality paper and stuff. Mm. Yeah. Beautiful photography. Any glute shots in there? No glute shots. If I had your glutes, yeah. Aaron. Yeah. All right. Thank you all so much for tuning in. And uh, that's it. That's all. We're going to jump over to the, the Genius Life podcast. Boom. Bow. Hope you guys devoured that conversation. Per mention, I appreciate Max so much. He's one of my close friends on the planet and um, he's just a brilliant mind. So it is a damn honor to share his neurological situation with y'all today. Once again, thank you guys for leaving us reviews on Apple Podcasts. Thank you to FGHFHDD, just a lot of letters in this name, for leaving us a review, saying this is simply the best podcast. Very kind. Love reading these guys. Thanks for subscribing. Thanks for sharing. Thanks for implementing this information into your life. I'll see you guys next week.